This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. And a warning to listeners, this episode contains mentions of drug abuse, sexual abuse, and language that might not be suitable for everyone. This week, we're talking about rap royalty and what it takes to hold on to the crown. In case you didn't know, it is a rap queen's big birthday weekend. Nicki Minaj is getting another year older. And to celebrate, she has gifted all her loyal subjects an album they've waited half a decade for. Pink Friday 2. Her fans, the Barbs, have been so excited for this drop because it means Nicki is back. I could tell he the one could have hated on him. Used to be a high roller, but I skated on him. When he went away, then I just waited on him. Came back, then I got X-rated on him. Never. And while they've loyally defended her crown over the last few years, the landscape of the rap queendom has changed dramatically. From Cardi B to Doja Cat, countless women have walked through the doors that Nicki flung open for female rappers. And the queendom is a little more crowded than it was in 2018. Today, I want to talk about Nicki's rise to the top and how threats to the queen's legacy may shape her return to the throne. To break it all down with me, I've got NPR music editor and host of Louder Than a Riot, Sydney Madden. Sydney, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much, Brittany. It really has been a minute. It has been a minute. I am so excited to have you here today because... When our producer, Corey Antonio, was like, we need to talk about Nicki Minaj, I was like, we have to talk to Sid. <laughs> like, there is there is nobody I want to talk to about Nicki Minaj more than you. To start things off, before we get into it, into it, into it, okay, I have a little question for you. Which Nicki verse do you think says the most about her place in rap and why? <laughs> we just starting off with the hard-hitting questions. Okay, Brittany. <laughs> Ah, there's many verses that could be emblematic of Nikki's stature and her place in rap. But I think the one that really marked her ascension in rap was her guest verse on Kanye West Monster in 2010. Nikki is very early in her career in 2010, and she's on a track with some heavyweights, not only Kanye, but Rick Ross and Jay-Z. And what makes this verse so singular is she accomplishes so much in a short amount of time. She gives you that New York Southside Jamaica Queens girl. She silences all these haters who say she shouldn't be anywhere. Wait, I'm the rookie, but my features and my shows tend to She name drops, you know, cultural staples. She cracks jokes. She shouts out her fan base. She gives you bars and theatrics and yes. everything that's going to become her calling card for decades to yes. come. And she does it in a way that is very accessible. So it's not too fast. So even if you don't, as a fan, have crazy breath control, you can still rap along with every verse. And... You know, within all the syllable bending and wild eye, but very controlled growls, she anoints herself. You could be the king, but watch the queen She's just a tornado of energy on that track that blows everybody else away. And that's why I got to give it to Monster. Honestly, I wholeheartedly agree. That was just, <laughs> oh my gosh. It just felt like a true arrival. Exactly, yeah. You know, so Nikki has been holding on to the crown as the queen of rap, literally, as she named herself then. And, and I want to talk about her rise and how she got that title. Like, what, what do you see as her coronation moment or, or even her crowning achievement? Hip-hop as a culture is, you know, fun and young and expressive in a party. But mm -hmm. rap, rap is a competition. Rapping is a competitive <laughs> art form. So Nikki, she's just a very sly, 
imaginative, highly skilled competitor as a rapper. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't do it halfway. When she does it, she attacks the beat and she creates a memory out of it for you as the listener. Can I get that chrome? Can I get that Remy? Can I get that coke? Can I get that honey? Can I get that margarita on a rock box? Rock, Can I get salt all around that rum, 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 rum tray? I was like, yo, Trey, do you think you could buy me a bottle of rosé? Okay. Again, to bolster the claim of queen of rap, because a lot of people can claim it, but you, you, you have to have stats to back it up. She has a lot of firsts and onlys to her name. She's broken so many Billboard records. Like her singles have gone quadruple times platinum with the Pink Print Tour, not only reaching the US and Europe, but touching down in Asia and Africa too. So she's penetrated markets that hip hop has never really seen before. And she's held her own as a rapper the entire time doing it. So that's why she's you know, widely considered the queen of rap. Don't worry about me and who I fire. I get what I desire. It's my empire. And yes, I call the shots. I am the umpire. I sprinkle holy water upon the vampire. In this very moment, I'm king. Beyond her being a very skilled rapper, she is a gorgeous and curvaceous woman. (laughs) So everything about her busting in the door in the rap industry gave like, power moves and it gave femme fatale at the same time. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of her success, I think, is due to the shrewd way in which she packaged herself over the years. She is a theater kid. She went to the fame high school, you know what I mean? Like she's a total theater kid. Yeah. But she very uniquely, and I think really like it took a lot of foresight to come up with all of these different characters and alter egos and rapping personas for herself, like Roman Zelansky and the fictional family that she created for him, like as one of her characters. Nikki the Ninja, Nikki the Heritage Barbie. Barbie, yes. I'm Nikki Minaj, Nikki Lewinsky, Nikki the Ninja, Nikki the Boss, Nikki the Harajuku Barbie. Like, I mean, I don't even know why you girls bother at this point. Like, I don't even know why you girls bother. <laughs> like, she literally has a whole community in her head that she can just pull out at, at any, any time. time and give you so much dexterity. It's almost like each of those personalities allows her to create more points of entry for her fans. But also, like, young kids were obsessed with her. I mean, even, like, I think there was a point where she had been in talks with uh, ABC Family for a show that was based on her young life growing up. During her rise, she had this cross-generational appeal and accessibility that a lot of rappers couldn't have or refuse to have or refuse to reach because, you know, it wasn't cool to do. Yeah. And she really broke the mold in so many ways. Yeah, no, I mean, she absolutely broke the mold. She created her own lane aesthetically, even among, you know, other women who had come before her. And my producer, Corey Antonio, kind of thinks that all this kind of fed into this overarching theme of camp. Mm. In many ways, Nicki Minaj was camp. That even in itself felt really different at the time for rap. Like, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I love that observation because if you think of the time she was coming up in, 2010's hip hop, it was the birth of a lot of subcultures and subcultures of those subcultures. So Mm -hmm. you have Kanye West being the Louis Vuitton Don. Mm -hmm. And there was the whole aesthetic associated with backpack rap. And how that (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, like the nerdy nerd rap nerd vibe and how that contended with the really like oversized, baggy, hard, black boy aesthetic. And in the midst of all that, here comes Nikki like pink wig, thick ass, loud, (laughs) colorful, unapologetic, and just really embodying everything that her raps did too. She leaned into the whimsical. She leaned into Mm -hmm. the absurdity of her rhymes. I honestly think it's very similar to Andre 3000 starting Hmm. to diverge in his style choices because he Mm -hmm. said before, it wasn't something I was trying to do really to get people to talk about me. I was just dressing how the music made me feel. Hmm. And I think that's very much what she was doing, too. She was dressing how the music made her feel. And Mm -hmm. it just translated to images and moments that she created that were really singular. Like, I still remember those press photos of the hot pink chicken wing chain that she's biting. (gasps) How can you forget it? Yes. How can you forget it? (laughs) 
I and thought honestly, I wanted one. What was wrong right. with me? Loki, I made one for Halloween one time. I just <laughs> went to the dollar store. But at the same time, her campiness inspired so many others and it helped her ascend into the fashion world. They love the drama the extravagance, the over the top. And that's always what she served up. The dramatic sensibilities, this camp sensibility. When you take those and you pair them with a very like decidedly pop sound, which she did, I mean, Nikki can rap, she can rap her tail off, but also she did have a very decidedly pop sound. I mean, how many times did I listen <laughs> to Starships when it came out? unspeakable i cannot speak i cannot speak on like i i was like literally i was like 25 to 50 percent barb for us oh my five gosh years. your spotify back in the day but i mean the day would have been hilarious to look at it would have been hilarious but when you combine like her pop aesthetics with the camp sensibilities and the theatricality and just the dramatics of it all i feel like that also was very key and central to her garnering a huge queer following mm-hmm. which definitely bolstered her success. Yeah. It also alchemized the buying power of the queer community in in a new way. Mm-hmm. Like there's already a very clearly acknowledged community that is ready to embrace some of these artists and to join in the fan base because in some way Nikki's embrace of her queer fandom and their embrace of her formed like a new audience artist pathway that didn't quite exist in the same way in rap previous. All these factors have contributed to her becoming, in many ways, an artist that defined the popular music of a given time. Mm -hmm. There was almost like some older hip hop heads or people who were maybe more purist who in many ways disdained Nikki's desire for that kind of success. Like, it was also kind of unheard of, I feel like, for a rapper at the time that she was ascending. Yeah, this is one of the many ironies that exist in rap. One of the more idiotic ironies, I would say. So <laughs> Pink Friday, Roman Reloaded, which dropped in 2012 and had a lot of her massively successful, you know, quote-unquote pop songs on it. Sexy and hot, girl, let's shut it down. Uh. That was what was denoted as her pop crossover moment. Crossover hit. And Mm -hmm. that is the moment where a lot of people met her with disdain. So in Nikki's case, creatively, her mind and her music expands way beyond the confines of genre. She helped to propel the entire genre of rap forward. The value and the marketability of hip hop skyrocketed in the 2010s as she ascended, right? Like she lifted Mm -hmm. up the entire genre, the entire culture. It kind of created a towering effect for her that was solitary and Mm -hmm. at times isolating. But without her, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have this explosion of young femme rappers doing what they do at times, like mimicking her technique, her flows, Mm -hmm. her style without Mm -hmm. her moving so high so fast. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the solitary place that she held and has held in hip hop for so long. I mean, you know, as Nikki was coming up, Rap was very much a genre that only let one woman win at a time. And, you know, as you said, she was the only female rapper on Young Money at the time of her ascent. And to recall a term that you have brought up on the second season of Louder Than a Riot and also earlier in this conversation, rap was very much steeped in this scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. And at some level, I can understand that because it's like, okay, you know, you know, you're the only one let into the room, probably, mm-hmm. and that the door has closed hard behind you. But still, she she played into it. Why do you think she felt the need to do that in the beginning when it seemed like she really was one of the only women in, in rap at that time? First of all, thanks for shouting out our work on Louder Than a Riot. And 
to break down scarcity mindset, you kind of have to set the stage for hip hop overall. So scarcity mindset is the belief that resources are scarce or in the hip hop space mm-hmm. specifically that there can only be one woman on top at a time, like one queen, right? Because, you know, you like success is scarce. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, resources are scarce. Studio time is scarce. Spots are scarce. And a lot of this mindset about there can only be one was instilled in hip hop very early on by management or by male rappers or by label execs because of the sexist belief that women can't work together or that they're catty or that they don't support each other or hiding behind the economic rationale that a label can't afford more one woman than a time. Hmm. But again, Nikki's ascension, it had a lot to do with her being in an insular place in Young Money's crew, she even talked about how her own abilities were called into question early on when she was on Young Money. She got imposter syndrome early on. She even got body dysmorphia from being in Young Money mm. early on. I was like the little sister with Wayne and Mac and all these boys, you know, Jay Mills and Gota and all of them. And all I would hear them talking about is big butts. <laughs> and I didn't feel complete or good enough. And just being really in that cocoon space and knowing all the Mm -hmm. history that I just mentioned, she was working with what she had. Beef and controversy have become a part of her legacy, like like any rapper of her caliber, right? I think about Miley Cyrus at the 2015 (laughs) MTV Awards. Back to this that had a lot to say about me the other day in the press. Miley, what's good? The Sheether back and forth with Remy Ma. Mm. I mean, I still listen to Sheether. Yeah. (laughs) But since Nicki's last album, I feel like the antics and the blowback from some of her beef and controversy has gotten more serious. Like at one point, Nicki made some deeply unfounded claims saying that the COVID-19 vaccines were causing impotence, Mm -hmm. uh, which she attributed to her cousin's friend. In Trinidad, right? In Trinidad. And like... Actual public officials had to come out and be like, hey, this is not this is not real. But also, like, I mean, there's Nikki's husband, and he was convicted of attempted rape back in 1995. Nikki has defended him and and maybe did a little more. Like in 2021, the alleged victim filed a lawsuit mm-hmm. saying that Nikki indirectly threatened her and, and tried to get her to take the story back. And this behavior has drawn criticism from even her most dedicated bar. Yeah. Like, How do we square this with both her own messaging around female empowerment and what's going on with rap today? I feel like that has kind of done a lot to change Nikki's legacy and her image in the past few years. Yeah. The status of her legacy is in a very ambiguous place right now. The past few points in the timeline you just mentioned, I would venture to say none of it is truly out of the character that Nikki has shown us before. She's very much for women's Hmm. empowerment, but she's not, I don't know to her if women's empowerment is synonymous with women's equality. Hmm. I think it has a lot to do with being the top of your game, the top of your class, Hmm. being the best you can be. And if that means smoking your adversaries in the process, so be it. Hmm. Obviously she's queen of rap. You know, she opened the door for a lot of women in rap and, you know, she's watching a lot of women, a lot of her sons, Uh (laughs) she likes to say. And she got a lot at this point. Yeah. She's got, I mean, she's got, you can see him. The genes are strong. (laughs) You can see it. But, you know, she's watching a lot of these women who are able to start their climb on the ladder of rap success without the same type or level of hate that she got. Like these are women who still do experience misogyny in hip hop, but you know, they're getting respect for some moves that they were able to learn from Nikki. And some of them have definitely openly credited Nikki with their success, but some of them haven't. <laughs> and I think that some fans and casual observers have read into that a bit, almost saying like, well, maybe Nikki felt like they didn't show her enough gratitude or maybe they needed to show Nikki more gratitude. I don't know. And we've seen Nikki kind of swiping at these women in lyrics or on social media and I think it could be somewhat relatable to be in this position, but, you know, some could see her as something of a sore winner. And it seems like she's still motivated by that scarcity mindset. I don't know her heart. I also have not personally talked to her. <laughs> I 
will say that culturally speaking, hip hop doesn't do a great job of saying thank you to the forebears. Aging in hip hop is tricky in general, as we've been discussing, but it's especially tricky for women. I I wonder, how do you see Nikki embracing that? How do you, or, or how do you see her like fighting against it or regressing in terms of her maturing and aging? What would you like to see? Well, I was reminded recently that there's definitely a difference between aging and maturing. (laughs) Aging is just living and not dying. Yeah. You know, it's just passing the days. Maturing is having the, the deep, honest conversations with yourself to acknowledge wrongdoing, to realize where you still want to grow and better yourself. In hip-hop, neither is really rewarded when it comes to women. What I would love to hear, what I'm hoping to hear from Pink Friday, too, is that moment of maturity, is that moment of maybe like a new maternal chapter. And this is not to say that every song needs to be about her son and about No, but I mean, but it's like almost a like real been- topic in, in, in rap for women. Men make a decent amount of songs either about their own mothers or other people being mothers or them oh, being yeah. fathers. There's so many top 10 lists about, you know, men understanding <laughs> women for this first time because they had a daughter or dropping the like, dear mama. Yes. Or, you know what I mean? But it's very few rap songs in depth yes. about motherhood that would make this an interesting turning point in her discography. You know, filling the engine with a different type of Yeah, fuel. having a different sensibility about what she's doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. For this, for this LP. <laughs> well, I mean, my hopes are, are with yours. Well, Sid, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so much fun to have you. Thank you so much, Brittany. This was a good one. That was Sydney Madden, NPR music editor and host of Louder Than a Riot. Coming up, we're definitely in a cowboy moment, but it's not the first and probably won't be the last. And it turns out why we embrace the symbol of the cowboy says a lot about where we are in history. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Before we get back to the show, we want to take a minute to say thank you so much to our It's Been a Minute Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means that you, the public, support it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. And for anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get actively involved in creating a more informed public. That's been our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. If you like Perks, It's Been a Minute Plus offers sponsor-free listening. If you just want to make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations, In the NPR network, that's great too. We've even had NPR Plus subscribers make additional contributions. 
What really matters is that you are a part of the community that makes this work possible. Your donation now funds the news and podcasts that expand your horizons, connect you to exciting ideas and people, and inspire you every day. Please give today at donate.npr.org slash minute or explore NPR plus at plus.npr.org. Thank you so much. This year, I've noticed there's this one accessory that every it girl seems to have. They were everywhere at both Beyonce and Taylor's concerts. And even our girl Barbie's got one. I'm talking about the cowboy hat. We ate our hats up for Renaissance. It's been everywhere, but so has the cowboy. The good old Western symbol has been riding on the high horse of culture for a while now. From Lil Nas X's Old Town Road to Paramount's Yellowstone, which was last year's most watched show across all of TV. Sure, you can blame the Yeehaw agenda. But I think our fascination with cowboys is bigger than that. The cowboy is speaking to us right now. But what is it saying? I sat down with two incredible thinkers. Jay Wortham, culture critic for the New York Times Magazine, and Nora Burnett Abrams, director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, which has a new exhibit called Cowboy. The three of us are Gideon on up and diving in to the cowboy's complicated history and what its image means to us in 2023. Nora, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you. And Jay, welcome. Thank you, longtime listener. First time appearance. So excited. (laughs) I'm excited. Y'all got me gassed up. All right. All right. Let's get to it. We are here today to talk about cowboys. The New York Times has said that we are in a cowboy era. I want to know if y'all agree. Jay, let's start with you. You know, yeah, yes, I agree with the paper record. I mean, I think that we are in more of a moment. I think that people are really embracing old classic mythologies and figuring out how to rework them and insert themselves into these narratives. And I think the cowboy phenomena fits that perfectly because it's all about reestablishing what makes America, America. And the iconography and the imagery and the clothes don't hurt, right? Like who doesn't want to put on a cowboy hat and chaps and leather and think about origin stories? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that we are absolutely having a cowboy moment. And I think that there's a longer history of why we're having a cowboy moment. The cowboy emerged in the middle of the 19th century, especially in the wake of the Civil War and the trauma of the battlefield and the anxiety of industrialization. And there are other kind of inflection points over the last 200 years where the cowboy has also resurfaced in a popular culture sense Hmm. in the wake of World War II. And then also certainly now in this moment where culturally through cinema, television, fashion. There are all these different ways in which the cowboy aesthetic is surfacing. And and I think it's not disconnected from coming out of a moment or responding to a moment of great anxiety that we've had over the last several years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we're having some sort of crisis or traumatic experience. It makes us want to reassert or reassess identity through very accessible iconography. I think that that's exactly it. I would say that there's a strong argument to be made for a return to something, again, as Jay referenced as an origin story, but something comforting uh, Hmm. for which for some, and I want to be clear, I'm I'm clearly, I I don't want to overgeneralize, but to make the point that there is a kind of comfort in that familiarity. Hmm. We're talking about this cowboy era that we're in right now. Where are y'all seeing cowgirls, cowboys, cow people showing up in the culture this year? I think what kicked off so much of the cowboy imagery renaissance, if you will, I guess, in popular culture was that first image of Beyonce with that silver disco Mm -hmm. hat on the white horse. And listen, we know Beyonce is a Houston girly. We know she's a Mm -hmm. Southern girly. Like that is so baked into 
her legacy as a musician and an artist and her family connections. But this album put it front and center in a way that really underscored all the talismans of that lineage, right? And the upbringing. So the tassels, the fringe, Mm. the boots, the hats, you know, I mean, she sold many cowboy hats on her website. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that was the merch. Oh my gosh. I mean, and to your point, like we've definitely seen that effect on the runways, but I've even been thinking about like my parents recently visited and I've never watched this show, but they were raving about Yellowstone, which is like definitely a Western Mm. TV show that's Mm -hmm. become extremely popular. One of the more popular Halloween costumes we saw this year was not just people dressing up as Barbie, but dressing up as the cowgirl Barbie. Mm. This year also, Mm -hmm. uh, not too many people saw it in wide release, but the Pedro Almodovar movie, Strange Way of Life, which is like this gay film that was very like... Western starring Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke. I don't know. It's in the air. It's kind of all around us. I mean, the cowboy is such a huge symbol in the United States, as we've been discussing, even just thinking about like the Marlboro Man, like it's stood for this rugged masculinity, the West, having a connection to nature, westward expansion that symbolizes, you know, good old American individualism, so it's called. But I also think that the concept of the cowboy has expanded in recent years to like almost be a more abstract symbol. What does the symbol of the cowboy mean and how has it changed? Nora, I'd love to hear from you. Sure. I mean, I think that was essentially the prompt of our exhibition, which is why has this figure persisted as a character and an icon for so many years? Of course, there's the real actual lived experience of those who work with animals, who work the land, you know, who embody that role on a daily basis, which is labor that's performed by those who are certainly not necessarily white. As people like envision maybe like the John Wayne sort Mm. of cowboy. Yeah. And you know what? The John Wayne cowboy was a complete invention based on dime store novels of the 19th century and Mm. experiences as promoted by productions like Buffalo Bill's Congress of the Rough Riders, you know, which toured all over this country, all over Europe, and perpetuated an idea of the cowboy as savior, cowboy as hero, cowboy as white, single, Hmm. you know, male (laughs) figure who saved the day. And it was based on a lot of that imagery and a lot of those performances and storytelling that Hollywood kind of picked up those threads and obviously ran with it. But the reality is that the cowboy has always been a very diverse figure, as I'm sure you all know, like in the mid 19th century, between a third and a quarter of all cowboys were either black or Mexican. And Mm. even the name cowboy is embedded in the history of slavery because Mm. those who were watching the cattle were the enslaved men who were protecting the animals while they're you know, owners were fighting in the Confederacy. And so they weren't referred to as men. They were referred to as boys. And that's really how you get cowboy. I did not know that. The Mexican cowboy, the vaquero, is a cow man. I mean, it's not a cowboy. It's referring Mm -hmm. to a man. But Mm -hmm. in the U.S., it shifted. So all that to say that the idea of the John Wayne figure, the Clint Eastwood (laughs) figure, was such an invention. And that just kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower audiences devoured it. And I think now there's a lot more representation that speak to a a far more accurate history of the cowboy and frankly, of Mm. the American West and of the country itself. Hmm. Jay, I'd love to hear from you on this. Like, what does the symbol of the cowboy mean and, and how have you seen it change? What I'm really interested in right now is trying to understand a bit better the abstraction of the cowboy, because the fascination both feels historical and ahistorical. Hmm. You know, I don't think that people who are going to the Renaissance tour, Taylor Swift tour, Barbie movie, are necessarily trying to divorce the settler legacy of what it meant to be a cowboy and those histories of violence from the embrace of it today. Maybe what I'm really working through is can those two things exist in tandem or are they inherently always tethered to each other? 
by just the nature of the fact of what it meant in many contexts to be a cowboy in the American West specifically. This imagery and working with cattle and cows is global. It's international. And there are lots of histories and legacies. And when we talk about cowboy here in America, we mean something really specific. Yes, we're thinking about a particular set of movies, a particular set of lineages and histories. What does it mean to be a person who then decides to put on a pair of chaps, put on a cowboy hat? Like, what are we actually celebrating and what are we trying to reclaim? And part of it, I think, is a really murky notion of freedom. It's a really interesting notion of independence. It's also an insistence on history in some ways, I think, of, you know, to Nora's point, that a quarter of American cowboys were black, not white. And so what does it mean not to see them? Maybe that's an okay space to dream in or to think about a critical fabulation, the way Sadia Harman talks about it in Wayward Lives, Mm. beautiful experiments of trying to imagine some of these stories. And maybe that's part of what's really incredible about trying to both claim Americanness and abstract it at the same time and think about it in a way other than what we know historically, which is so terrible and violent. Maybe there are other alternate ways of being and we have to try to embrace them in order to bring them into today. Coming up, why the cowboy is a sex symbol and who owns its image? Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And speaking about symbolism, the cowboy is also a sex symbol. It's an enduring archetype among queer people of all genders and sexualities. Thinking of like Tom of Finland and the village people, and that's just like scratching the surface. You know, and let's be real, like cowboy garb, like the getup, as you mentioned, Jay, like the chaps, the hat. I mean, I think it's kind of like hot to pretty much everyone on some level, at least in America. If there's any hope for all of us. If there's any hope. (laughs) If there's any hope for all of us. But I wonder, what does the cowboy say about American desire? Ooh, Nora. I have a lot of ideas on this, or a lot Mm -hmm. of opinions, I should say, on this. To Jay's point precisely, there is this icon character of the cowboy. Then you have the people who have actually embodied the role, embodied the labor, who would say, my life doesn't occupy that space of desire and virility. It is Mm. lonely and it is hard and it is physically demanding and it is isolating. And it is Mm -hmm. certainly in the 19th Mm -hmm. century as the cowboy figure emerged, that's that more accurately, I would say, characterizes the role. I think now you have, it's still 
arduous and it's difficult and it's not necessarily traditionally sexy work, but does require a physicality, of course. And I think we as consumers of American culture very much love a strong, you know, (laughs) physically empowered being. The cowboy figure almost more than any other kind of type or icon does that. You know, we have Dina Lawson's Cowboys, one of the works in our exhibition. Mm -hmm. These young men who are sitting astride their horses in the dark of a Georgia night. Mm -hmm. The work is all about dissociating whiteness from the sexual allure of the cowboy. We have these three sculptures by an artist named Ken Taylor Reynaga, who's an LA-based artist who's from originally from Bakersfield, California. So his sculptures are based on kind of hats worn by those who work in the field, so to speak. And he has enhanced these hat-like forms. They're an homage to the sombreros and also the cowboy hat, and mm-hmm. they are very suggestive of the female anatomy. And I swear, once you uh-huh. see that connection between the cowboy hat and a vagina, you can't unsee it. Mm. Ooh, Jay, I want to hear from you. I'm like, my <laughs> mind is, y'all got my mind going just now. There is something about a cowboy that is just inherently erotic, Mm -hmm. right? And when I say cowboy, I'm including all genders. I think about a movie like Desert Hearts, classic lesbian erotica. There is this incredible synergy between queer cinema and cowboy culture. And I mean, Brokeback Mountain immediately comes to mind. And that Uh is just one of the most sensual films and short stories I have ever encountered. I mean, it's just so tactile and dynamic and, you know, the feelings of longing and Mm -hmm. inevitability and the natural world. I mean, all those things are bound up with queer destiny in in these incredible ways. The definition of, or I guess the sort of ideas that come along with the definition of a cowboy is someone who is at the margins of society, who is relying on these really strong bonds with other cowboys, right? And of course, I think about Lil Nas X. And can I just say that I feel like Old Town Road, that music video, is the original Barbie movie. And I don't know why we're not talking about it. Uh. Like, isn't there a scene with like Nas and Billy and they're in the convertible and their gear? And I'm just, I don't know which one's which. Maybe they're both all the time. But like, there, it's a, that's a total... Barbie and Ken road trip, but you know. Oh my gosh, so true. But Nas is so obsessed with definitely eroticizing the idea of the cowboy and that imagery. And so that brings it into popular culture also. But I I just think there's something very unfettered that American sex doesn't naturally have. I think, you know, we are Mm -hmm. so puritanical as a culture. Sex is still so taboo. There's such a like pulling away from notions of desire and eroticism. And so there's something about no rules, no boundaries. It's Mm -hmm. just me, you, and the open road and an open sky that is just so erotic because it just feels like anything can happen. Oh, it's like spontaneity and like the element of surprise and novelty are like, that's the lifeblood of the erotic. That is the lifeblood of the romantic. Can I just say that not for nothing, but all the accoutrement of cowboy culture, ropes, leather, things to restrain things with, boots, all of these are items that are fetishized and just widely used in BDSM and kink communities and culture. So there is just that natural overlap anyway. Like they just go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So, so, so true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like what is a lasso, you know? Like what is a lasso? Right. Right. Many things. Many things. (laughs) Many things. (laughs) as we've been discussing, the narrow definition of the Hollywood cowboy, that John Wayne kind of like dirty, hairy figure or whatever, doesn't include black cowboys. It doesn't include vaqueros. It doesn't include... Female cowboys. Yeah. It feels like a lot of the people playing with the symbol of the cowboy right now are outside of that narrow Hollywood definition who are playing with this symbol of the cowboy as like a project of reclamation. I Mm. wonder... Who owns the cowboy? Oh my God, I love this question, right? Because it is almost impossible to answer, right? Because, you know, listening to Nora, I'm reminded that the American term itself is foisted upon 
Black enslaved folks who are caring for cattle. Mm -hmm. And the term persevere is the way so many of those terms do. And so how much of that can we rework and reclaim and repurpose? I mean, that is so the American project, taking (laughs) the trash and trying to figure out how to turn it into something that works for all of us. Like we upcycle so much of our own culture here. And it's, it's such an ongoing conversation about what is appropriation? You know, what should be left behind? What should we hold on to? So I think it's good that we don't have an answer, right? And I think that it does allow the notion of a contemporary cowboy to loosen itself a little bit from its historical violence and possibly reinvent itself. Mm -hmm. But I think so much of it speaks to how little we actually really know about American history and how much of it has been dominated by narratives that become embedded and concretized and permanent without us really even understanding why or what they consist of. Mm. And I, I think that's part of the conversation that maybe is starting to happen with this pop culture embrace is that aesthetics sometimes come first and then an, an interest or a deeper interest in what it means to embrace them. Not always. Mm. Sometimes things are just fun. But in this case, you kind of have to hope that <laughs> – there is some curiosity about what it means to put on emblems and cultural signifiers that have a really, really, really long history, both in our country and others. Hmm. Now, I've been thinking about it myself, and I think you're right. I don't think we have an answer. I think that my thought is that maybe it belongs to no one. That is something mm-hmm. that I've been thinking about. Yeah. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why it's so malleable and changeable as a symbol. It's a part of the public domain at this point. I would concur. I think it's it's so much bigger than ownership could ever contain. It has been exported and absorbed by so many other cultures, and it was born of so many other cultures as well. Uh-huh. Even if it's still this like symbol of Americanness, I think it's been claimed by so many, and rightfully mm-hmm. so. And I know that I'm just like it sounds like I'm just pushing like every artist in our show, but I will say <laughs> there's one other artist I would want to introduce, which who is um, Nathan Young. His work in the show is called Activation Transformation. And what he's done is he's collected a number of different objects of material culture, photographs, boots, t-shirts, hats that are from his family members who have been a part of over several generations of uh, Indian rodeo culture and specifically the Pawnee rodeo culture and, and the communities that surround that, which is to say that this is more cowboy than any cowboy in air quotes could mm. be. What his installation demonstrates is how this specific indigenous community have been performing and competing in various types of rodeo events and and activities for generations. Nathan has said that it's kind of an urban legend in his family that one of his great uncles was the silhouette for Wrangler jeans. That I can't fact check. So I I want to be totally honest. That's cool though. Right? It is cool. It's fascinating because it's like the most unexpected source in a sense, because we have this ridiculous binary that has been put forward in American culture of a cowboy versus an Indian, right? It's the, Hmm. and so what his installation does is it upends that, you know, silly binary by showing through actual materials how cowboy his community and his family has always been. Y'all have given me so much to think about. (laughs) Nora, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk to me about the cowboy. This was great. My pleasure. What an honor. Thanks again to New York Times Magazine critic Jay Wortham and Nora Burnett Abrams, director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. The museum's exhibit, Cowboy, is showing now. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. It's Tyree from Atlanta. I was wondering, what are your thoughts on Brenda Lee's rocking around the Christmas tree currently sitting at number one above Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You? Has the Queen of Christmas finally lost her reign or do you think this is just a glitch in the Matrix? 
first of all, Tyree, thank you so much for calling in with this question. You know, I don't know if this is something that needs to be said. Maybe I haven't said it on this show before, but just let it be known. I am a lamb down to the socks. I love Miss Mariah Carey. She is my queen. She is one of the greatest voices on this planet. However, I am extremely pleased that Brenda Lee is also having her moment in the sun this year. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody owns Christmas. And we also have to give some credit to the fact that Brenda Lee released also one of the most famous and lovable Christmas songs of all time. I mean, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, it just gives you that party vibe. Rockin' around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. So I actually didn't know that Brenda was still out here making music and videos and the like, because I assumed that Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree was recorded by a grown woman 65 years ago. But little did I know... When she recorded that song, she was 13 years old. Can you believe that? Absolutely love that. Number two, I also have really enjoyed like the whole marketing aspect around Rocking Around the Christmas Tree that they did this year. There was a new video recorded. I feel like I've seen like some graphics here and there of Miss Brenda Lee and Head to Toe Red with a gorgeous updo looking amazing. And I just have to say like, it's really nice to see a Christmas legend get her flowers while she can still smell them. And also while she can have a little friendly, healthy competition with Mariah. So happy holidays to Brenda. Congratulations on everything. And I don't know, just keep rocking around the Christmas tree. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Placzek. Engineering support came from Phil Edfors. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.